If you have your Bibles, please turn to the story of Esther. The story of Esther is found in the Old Testament. Uh, in your Bibles, it's right after Ezra and Nehemiah and before Job and the Psalms. We'll be in the book of Esther. Let me pray before we start. Uh, let's pray. Father, help us to stand on every promise of your word as we've just sung with our hearts and our lips. May that be true of our lives, that we would trust you alone, that your grace is sufficient. We ask for your spirit to grant us understanding as we listen to your word, and would it bring glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Esther is, this is key, I, I know we don't need to say it, but I'll say it anyways. The book of Esther is a divinely inspired biblical narrative, historical account of God's faithfulness and protection of his covenant people Israel from their enemies. This narrative work is, at the same time, beautifully written and composed of artistry and complexity that interweaves the themes and plot seamlessly into a masterpiece of a story and structure that is simple yet profound. Much has been written about Esther, but only to show and really to question the accuracy of this story. Did it really happen? How much of it is trustworthy? Were these people mentioned actual people in history? Was this even in the Bible? A lot of criticism has been given to the book of Esther for one reason. And that reason is, God is not mentioned at all. Did you guys hear that? God is not mentioned at all. The law is never mentioned. Prayer is never mentioned. Sacrifice and offerings are never mentioned in the book of Esther. Furthermore, both Esther and Mordecai, the two main people that God will use to save the Jews from complete annihilation, seem to have lacked spiritual awareness. They weren't the most godly examples for us to follow and to learn about. Esther learns of the plot for from Haman that the Jews will be completely annihilated, and she has a decision to make. She decides to participate and join in with the pagan king. Mordecai and Esther choose not to reveal their Jewishness. It's as if they have forgotten God. With the Reformation Day coming up soon, we're reminded of Martin Luther and John Calvin and how they were men who looked to the Word. They brought back the importance and the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We learned of Scripture alone. And even this man, Martin Luther, who fought so hard to reform the church back to the Bible, says this, I am such an enemy of the book of Esther that I wish it did not exist for it Judaizes too much and has in it a great deal of heathen perverseness. John Calvin never preached from it, or at least there's no recorded sermon from him on the book of Esther. So how are we to understand the book of Esther? Is it trustworthy and accurate? How can we understand and interpret this story? We will begin to unfold and uncover the answers to these questions as we move through our study of Esther, as well as the most important and pressing question, where is God? Where is God? To ease your minds a little bit, 
on the, the accuracy, the inerrancy, veracity, sufficiency, and authority of Scripture. The story of Esther shares many different elements with the story of Joseph and also the account of Moses and the Exodus. It also contains indirect references to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and the history of Israel with the Malachites and even God's promise being fulfilled. It has similarities to the story of Daniel. So should we doubt those as well? Should we dismiss those books as well? There's absolutely no reason to doubt or dismiss the book of Esther as biblical historical narrative. It has been preserved and confirmed as part of scripture and has been included into the canon. It is part of a collection of books that has been termed the megaloth or scrolls that are read every year. This includes Song Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. The book is named after Esther, but we'll soon learn that the lead character is not Esther, but God. The lead character in the book of Esther is God. And only one conclusion can be reached when the book is read, that God was behind it all. God was behind it all. The story is not only about the Jews being delivered through the ironic and even humorous events that take place, but it clearly demonstrates and is sprinkled throughout with the hand of God. This leads us to an important doctrine, and that is the doctrine of divine providence. The doctrine of divine providence. And we will become very familiar with this over the course of the following weeks. And I pray and trust that this will bring a great comfort and encouragement to your hearts. Today will just be an overview. It's not your typical sermon. It will just be an overview, an intro to the book. And this is like seeing the picture on the front of a puzzle box. You get the whole picture of what it's supposed to look like before you open it out and lay out all the pieces and start putting it together. So this week, we'll look at the picture on the front of the box. We'll even begin to open it and lay out the pieces. And what I like to do is find all the edges, because that's the easiest, and put that together to to provide the framework for us to understand what this book is about. Next week, we'll begin to put those puzzle pieces together to see how this story is clearly about God's work behind the scenes. So first, we'll look at the storyline of how Esther fits into the storyline of the complete story of Scripture that's important for us to take note of. As you know, in the beginning was creation. Not long after that was the fall of mankind. But God gives a message of promise and hope in Genesis 3.15, where he speaks to Satan and says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is referring to the Messiah to come. Christ one day coming to triumph over Satan, sin, and death. And so the people of God are waiting and anticipating the Messiah to come. Yet their lives are filled with rebellion and disobedience towards God. But God in his faithfulness calls Abraham and makes an everlasting covenant with him, which contains the promise of a seed, of land, a nation, a divine blessing and protection. This Abrahamic covenant promise fulfillment extends all throughout Scripture, and that's important for us to take note of. With that in mind, we then learn of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Joseph, Moses and Israel and Egypt and the Exodus, the law of God given at Sinai, instructions for the people of God on how to live holy lives and be a blessing to the world. You have the period of judges and kings, You have King Saul and King David 
and you have the Davidic covenant, which is made to show that the ultimate king will be a descendant from David who will one day rule and bless from Israel. You have Solomon. And after Solomon, you see that the nation of Israel is split because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience towards God. Now you have the ten northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Both kingdoms continue to be characterized by idolatry and immorality, and as God forewarned them, judgment fell on Israel because of their sin. Because of their sin. The northern tribes were taken into captivity by Assyria. The southern tribes were taken into captivity by Babylon. And not long after that, Babylon was overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians. And all of this has come to pass. And so, where does Esther come in? Esther is one of the post-exilic books along with Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah tells of the Israelites returning from exile, returning from captivity. Ezra chapters 1, 2, and 3 tell of the Jews returning under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Ezra chapter 4, the building is stopped. There's opposition. It's halted. Between chapter 4 of Ezra and chapter 5 of Ezra, the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah prophesy. Chapter 5 and 6 of Ezra continue, and the temple is completed. Now we have the story of Esther, and that's where it fits in. After chapter 6 of Ezra and before chapter 7 of Ezra, in that gap is the book of Esther. After that, you have the return of the Jews under Ezra, and then another wave of returning Jews under Nehemiah, and then the prophecy of Malachi, and then silence for 400 years. We are towards the end of Old Testament history. The story of Esther takes place in the context of this low point in Israel's history. This is evidenced by the fact that in the story of Esther, there's no mention of God or of spirituality. The narrator implies by this how the nation has, again, forgotten God. They've turned away from him. They have not been faithful people in exile, and now they find themselves on the brink of being completely eliminated. Think about that. They were about to be completely eliminated. The people must have been wondering, where is God? Where is he? But remember that the story of Esther is not the end of the story. To God, this is a story that is to be continued. It's continued to be continued. The promises of Genesis 3.15 has not been fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant promise has not been fulfilled. The divinic covenant has not been fulfilled yet. But evil seems to be dominating. Evil seems to be increasing. But God is still active and at work. God is still active and at work. In what seems like a dark time, God provides light through encouragement and hope that carries on. And as we'll see, even to this day for the Jewish people. So that's kind of where Esther fits in into the storyline of Scripture. Next, we'll look at the setting, the setting of Esther. With this backdrop in mind of Israel being far from home in captivity, wondering where God is, they don't see God. Where is he? What is he doing? Is he at work? Is he still working things for our good? Where and when does the story of Esther take place? And how were those Jews feeling? The story of Esther takes place during the rule of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was a dominating ruling power of the time. 
This was a vast empire covering from India all the way to Ethiopia during the reign of King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, which was his Greek name. The events of Esther take place around a time frame of about 10 years, from 483 to 473 B.C. It's set in the citadel or palace of Susa, which was one of the four capitals during that time, located in modern Iran, in the palace of King Xerxes. That's where Esther takes place during this 10-year time period at Xerxes' palace. After many Israelites returned under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, there were still Jewish people who did not return, who remained as part of the Persian Empire, and they were not following God's will for their life. They were avoiding the responsibility to return and to set up the sacrificial system and to become involved in temple worship. So what does God do? with his disobedient people. What is God doing? Is God still with his people? Is he still working everything out? And how do you know? How do you know that he's working everything out? Because you don't see him. How do you process God's workings when you cannot see him and when you are in sin? Is he still at work? What is he doing? Esther tells the story of the Jewish people who had chosen not to return to their homeland, despite the warnings from Isaiah and Jeremiah forewarning them before that they should come out of Babylon after 70 years of captivity so that they could come to be under the blessing of God and his covenant promises. And even then, they know that, and they still, some don't return. They had been granted access to return from exile through God's providence of using a pagan king named Cyrus to issue a decree to allow them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And again, they chose to remain in their adopted homeland in Persia. Why? Because it was a more attractive place to be than to go back to the ruined and destroyed city of Jerusalem. They could attain affluence and influence, and there was no looking down upon their ethnic or or cultural background or religious uh, background. They could gain for themselves prosperity, It was easier to live in this booming empire than to go back to God's ways of temple worship. They didn't want to return. Are they still God's people in covenant relationship with him? Are the Jews living in the Persian Empire still under God's covenantal care? We will find out. The author is unknown, but we know that they must have been closely acquainted or closely connected with the events of this book and with Persian customs and society. The date of writing is also unknown, which leads to the criticism of this book. Uh, but Esther 10, verse 2, speaks of as, as if Xerxes' reign has already ended. And so the earliest possible writing date would be after his reign, around the mid-5th century B.C. That's the setting of Esther. We've looked at how it fits into the storyline of the Bible. We've looked at the setting of Esther. We'll look at some themes that are sprinkled throughout this book. The book of Esther will definitely raise a lot of questions. It will raise a lot of questions. These questions lead to the theological answer that Esther provides, that God is hidden but active. God is hidden but active. It is the power of the active, invisible God. The power of the active, invisible God. This is, again, the doctrine of divine providence. God works in ordinary means. 
ordinary means, means that are normal, that routinely happen in this creation. In other words, God doesn't just work in miracles that defy the created order. God works by ordaining everything in the created order to work out for his glory too. Providence literally means to provide in advance. To provide in advance. It is, it is as one author puts it, the continuous agency of God by which he makes all events of the physical and moral world fulfill the original design with which he created it. John Calvin says of God that he so overrules everything by his providence that nothing happens without his approval. Nothing happens without his approval. More importantly, Scripture says, Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 15, verse 9, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Esther, chapter 4, verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther, you've been placed in this position during this time exactly because God wanted you to be here. This is the providence of God at work. This is the power of the active, invisible God. God is hidden, but he's active. He's hidden, but active. How many times is the name of God mentioned in Esther? Zero. The omission of God's name is intentional. It's intentional. It shows that he is invisible. At certain points in the book, it's so clear that God is doing something, but his name is withheld. So that you understand, just like in life, you don't see God visibly doing something. You can't see him, but on the other hand, he's always active. He's always working. He's always present. To be hidden is to be present, yet unseen. To be hidden is to be present, yet unseen. God is hidden in the narrative of Esther, but not absent. He's not absent. In his hiddenness, he is all the more present. This leads to another theme, which is irony. Irony. You see that God is invisible, and by the use of irony, that he is also at work. Irony describes things that are reverse, things that are meant one way but end up being a completely different way. And all of that is used by the author of Esther to demonstrate God's sovereignty behind the scenes. You have to pay attention to the irony, the contrast, the reversals. This is absolutely essential to understanding Esther. This is clearly seen in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary. The ESV says, the reverse occurred. The NIV says, the tables were turned, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. A complete reversal. This is irony, how the irreversible can be reversed. 
And we will see that even the most disreputable characters and flagrant violators of his will are bent, are bent into the service of his ultimate purpose. Another theme that we see are banquets, these parties. Really, they're drinking parties to get drunk. I won't say much about this now, but take note of all the banquets as you read the story of Esther. They occur throughout the the narrative at key points, at key points. So the theme of the providence of God, irony, reversals, contrasts, and banquets, are to are, we are to take note of those things. Now let's look a little bit at the structure of the book, the structure. The structure of the book is closely connected with the themes of the book. Again, the providence of God, reversals, irony, contrasts, banquets, and that will draw out for us the purpose of the book. That will help us to see what the purpose of the book is. The plot is structured around banquets, these parties, that correspond to a significant reversal. They correspond to a significant reversal. The whole book is one chiastic structure. What that means is that it's defined by parallels, parallels that parallel each other, and they meet at the middle point. And that middle point is the key focal point of the story. It's the turning point. It's where the reversal happens. It's where the first things are undone by the second things. And that just shows that there's a total reversal that occurs. God will turn it all around in the end, and he will turn it all around towards his kingdom. Again, remember Genesis 3.15. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the Davidic covenant. This story is continued to be continued. It's part of a larger picture of the entire Bible. That's the structure of the book. It reverses at a key point in this chiastic structure of parallels. So a quick summary of the book, a Cliff Notes version. Uh, what is happening in this biblical narrative? What is happening? Well, we need to know the main characters, the key characters. There's five. First, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. He craves control. He's a drunk. He has an insatiable sensual appetite. But at the same time, he's easily moved. He's easily manipulated. He's a very interesting person and king in this story. You have Queen Vashti, who refuses to obey the king's command at one of these parties. You have Esther, who's an orphan Jew, and she replaces Vashti as queen of Persia. And she's also known for her great outward beauty. You have Haman. He's an Amalekite who is placed in charge of the king's princes, and who plotted against the Jews to completely destroy them and annihilate them. And you have Mordecai, who's also a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. This is important as we get into the story. Who's the older cousin of Esther who took care of her and was a palace official to the king. So those are the characters. King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, Queen Vashti, Esther, Haman, and Mordecai. So quickly, chapter 1. There are banquets, there's parties happening, and Queen Vashti refuses to obey King Ahasuerus, and so she is essentially kicked out. She's told to go away. And this opens up the position for someone to replace her as queen. Chapter 2, there's a contest to see who would become queen, and Esther happens to win the king's favor. We also learn of Mordecai hearing of a plot to kill the Jews, to kill the king. And so, Esther, he tells Esther, Esther tells the king for him, 
and Mordecai essentially saves the king's life and is recorded in a book. Chapter 3. Haman is promoted to be in charge of all the king's princes. This is a high position of honor and authority, and the king's servants would bow down to him, would pay homage to him, except for Mordecai. He would not do that. He would not bow down to Haman. Haman gets angry at him, and he goes to the king to issue this issue this decree to kill all the Jews. Chapter 4. Esther and Mordecai hear of Haman's decree to destroy the Jews, so Esther decides to approach the king. Again, she hasn't revealed that she's a Jew herself. Chapter 5. Esther goes before the king and invites him and Haman to a banquet, to a party, so that they can drink some more. Haman and Mordecai cross paths once again, and Mordecai still refuses to bow down to Haman. Haman gets even more angry, and this time he has a hanging pole. He has gallows made to hang Mordecai on. Chapter 6. We talked about the chiastic structure. Chapter 6 is that middle point, that focal point where that reversal happens. Chapter 6. The king is unable to sleep for whatever reason, so he asks to have the book of records read to him. He hears of when Mordecai saved his life and asks if anything has been done to honor him. It happens that nothing's been done to honor Mordecai for saving his life. And at that exact moment, Haman comes in because he wants to ask the king about hanging Mordecai. But before he can do that, the king asks Haman what should be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Haman, not knowing that the king is thinking about Mordecai, assumes that he's speaking about him. And so Haman answers with the most honoring suggestions that he can think of. And so the king tells Haman to do all of that for Mordecai. Chapter 7, Esther invites the king and Haman to a second party where it's revealed to the king of Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. So that would include Esther's own life as well. The king becomes angry at Haman and orders Haman to be hung on that same pole that he made for Mordecai to be hung on. Chapter 8, Mordecai is promoted and set over the house of Haman. The king through Mordecai issues another decree for the Jews to be able to defend themselves against the initial decree for them to be destroyed. Chapter 9, the Jews destroy their enemies and the Feast of Purim is instituted to celebrate their deliverance from annihilation in Persia. To this day, it is celebrated each year and during this celebration, the book of Esther is read. Chapter 10 ends with a description of Mordecai's great accomplishments. So what is the purpose of Esther? What is the purpose of Esther? Esther provides a message of hope, a message of hope through God's providential care for his people. Esther provides a message of hope through God's providential care of his people. Why does this matter? Why does this matter to the original audience? And why does that matter to us today? First, we'll look at why does this matter to the original audience. To give them confidence that God is at work even when they don't see him. That God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises through his providence. The book of Esther provides great encouragement to these struggling Jews. It would have helped them to realize that the surrounding people, they, they seem so great and awesome, but they could never conquer the unique people of God that even threats to eliminate them would not prevail because Israel was and is under the protection of God. Even though a large number of them were outside of the land, 
God is still providing for them and protecting them. The book of Esther would also encourage them to worship the God of Israel, though he's not mentioned by name in it. Also, that exile will come to an end. Exile will come to an end. The enemies will be put away. This is simply just a trailer, a preview of something bigger to come. And through progressive revelation, we know that Queen Esther eventually becomes the stepmother of King Artaxerxes, Xerxes, the son of Xerxes, which is favorable to Ezra and Nehemiah because he allowed the Jews to return and build the walls of Jerusalem. It may also have played a role in Nehemiah becoming a cupbearer to the Persian king later on. So this is why it matters to the original audience. Why is this still significant today for us sitting here? Think about your life. Think about your life. Think about everything that is going on in your life at this moment. God is always active, even though you can't see him. Nothing in your life is ever a mistake since God is providentially in control. We just need to be obedient instead of panicking about something wrong that needs to be fixed. It's significant for us today because it gives us confidence that God will conquer evil in the end for all time in days to come because we know he has the power to do it invisibly here. And interestingly, this is the only book that the Nazis prohibited to be read in concentration camps. They even understood what this book meant. That if you oppose God's people, it's over for you in the end. If you oppose God's people, it's over for you in the end. We live in a completely pagan world. We face difficult ethical and religious questions in a highly political culture and society one that is hostile to our most fundamental Christian convictions. We struggle to respond wisely to difficult circumstances that come our way and over which we sometimes seem to have little control over. We are flawed people, just like Esther and Mordecai. We don't always exhibit godly character and make the wisest decisions. God is working providentially, in this completely secular and ungodly course of human events to save his people, to save his people against all expectation. Human action, understand this, human action is essential to divine providence. Human action is essential to divine providence, yet God's triumph in history ultimately does not depend on what we do, but on what he does. The prime example of that is Jesus being crucified. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was beaten. He was crucified. That's what man did. Didn't depend on what man did. It depends on what God was doing. It brought atonement for our sins. It brought forgiveness for our sins. It brought us eternal life. God is behind the scene working for our good even when we cannot see or do not want to see him. God unfolds his will for individual lives through providence. 
So should we question his divine providence? Should we question it? Or simply by faith, trust him. Trust him in all and every circumstance. We should live with complete confidence, knowing that our lives are not at the sole mercy and the whims of this world and others. We should come to realize that there truly is a God behind the scene and that this great God cares far more for his people than his people will ever know and that this great God loves his people far more than they will ever deserve. The story of Esther tells us of God's protection and preservation of the Jews. God is also protecting and preserving us eternally. How does this point to the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How does this point to Jesus Christ? The deliverance of God's people from Haman's death decree assured the continuance of the Jewish nation, which their Messiah would come from. Evil didn't win in stopping the plan of God to bring a Messiah to save his people. God's plan of redemption will never be stopped. It will never be stopped. No human action can ever determine the outcome of things that is outside the will of God. Christ's resurrection from the grave is the ultimate reversal of expected outcomes. We who could expect only death have been given life that is imperishable and eternal. And God will one day in the future bring about a mass conversion and restoration of Israel, Romans chapter 11. And that's simply amazing. Knowing the history of Israel, their denial of of God, their unbelief, their disobedience, their constant rebellion against him, turning to idolatry, turning to immorality, turning to pagan kings to lead them. But God will one day in the future bring about a mass conversion of his people. And to think about Christ atoning for all those sins. God is faithful to keep his promises. God is faithful to bring about the fulfillment of his covenant. One application for us, kind of more like homework, but read Esther. Read Esther. Become familiar with the characters, the structure, the story. Because when you do, when you do, you will come to see the great sovereign God of providence behind it all. You will see the merciful and gracious God who is faithful to his people in spite of their rebellion and spiritual apathy. You will see a caring and loving God who preserves and protects his people. In the end, you will see more of God. Isn't that what we need? you will see more of God in every situation and every circumstance in your life. And that will serve to bring you comfort and encouragement and hope in your own personal lives 
and in the midst of this increasingly evil and ungodly culture that might not be seeking to destroy and kill Christians at this time, but is seeking to corrupt Christian values and principles and liberties. A mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. God has given you physical and spiritual life for such a time as this. You may feel far from God, but he is always near. You may feel like you have been unfaithful to God, but know that God is always faithful. You may feel confused about what God is doing, but he is absolutely certain about what is happening. He says, I'm hidden, but active, not absent. My providential care for you overrules all things. Some of you might have been wondering for Grace Church, what is God doing with Grace Church? What is he doing? Never forget God's providence, that he's always present, at work, hidden but active, caring for his people, loving his people, protecting, preserving them. And again, think about your own lives. Is there any reason to doubt God's providence in it? And if we truly believe that God is providentially caring and working everything out for our good and for his glory, how should we respond to him? How should we respond to him? So I hope this gives you a little bit of uh, understanding of the book of Esther. And I hope that you guys will spend time reading it in the weeks to come. And that we together as a church would learn and understand what Esther is truly about. And that it would grow us and help our church to trust God more and to see more of him in everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God of providence, that you go before all things, that you're with us through all things, and that we will be with you through all of these things. Father, thank you for your word, for the encouragement and hope that it provides. Thank you that you've shown us that, given us a glimpse of your care for your covenant people Israel and how you care for us, your church. Help us to be faithful people as we live these lives in these times as you've called us to be witnesses here. So thank you. Would we be faithful to do that and would you receive all the glory? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.